From the Times of Northwest Indiana and nwi.com slash podcasts, you're listening to Byline. The podcast about the newspaper's most fascinating stories and the reporters who tell them. Kale Wilk, and this time Byline examines a killer that terrorized NWI in the 90s. We'll talk with the detective assigned to the investigation. Nothing like this, at least in recent past, had ever happened in, in northwest Indiana. And we'll sit down with a retired weapons analyst who helped crack the case. The task force and the public themselves are all quite nervous to solve this, and they're all trying their best to figure out what's going on. So, hello. It's been a while since we've put together one of these Crimes That Rock the Region installments, but here's another one, finally. As one might expect, coronavirus coverage has taken up a great deal of our time and energy, and we're hoping that all that are listening are taking care to be safe and careful during these uncertain times. But I won't keep you waiting too long here. So our story starts in the 90s in the region. Well, you know, I I do remember that time as as everyone was afraid of everything because no one really knew for sure when this was going to happen again, where it was going to happen again. This is Mark Becker, a former detective that helped investigate the notorious shotgun killer that brought fear to the region. I do recall that we had... uh, a lot of discussions by communities, by mayors and such, whether or not they were going to allow for trick-or-treating, and if so, were they going to do it during the day or at night, or what, what were they going to do? Um, and as I mentioned, you know, people parking at least a car length of, uh, behind other cars at stoplights and such because they just didn't want to, uh, They wanted, everyone was just on the edge. Nothing like this, at least in recent past, had ever happened. In, in northwest Indiana. And the case of the shotgun killer comprised a series of gruesome murders committed with the firearm in a seemingly random fashion over four different days. But even trying to track down the killer proved a difficult task for multiple local police agencies. We'll start with the first day, October 30th, 1990. Mark Becker can get us started. To answer your first question, on October 30th is when this whole thing kicks off. And it kicks off with the murder of Lawrence Mills, who's parked at... Uh, I believe the VFW in Griffith, Indiana. He he's found a shot, and that's about 9:10 p.m. And then we have the series of travels here. They go down what is a seven-mile road they call that that connects uh, Crown Point all the way down to Cedar Lake. So that's what what that is, and that's where he begins to continue. So we have a shooting on the way down. Uh, or, I'm sorry, he went down 41. He came mm-hmm. back to it. The shooting in St. John at Ann Nikolich, but she is not shot. She she was not uh, injured. And then we have the double shooting attempt down here at Cedar Lake where we have Rhonda Hammersley is in a car with Carrie Gilson, and they're waiting, um, I believe, for Gilson's ride to show up. The, the, the gas station is closed. And... There's, there's a gunshot. Rhonda Hammersley is, is shot in the head. Jilson looks over, sees the shotgun coming at her, sees a guy holding the shotgun, and she 
puts her head down, the shot is fired, it misses her, and she pretends that she's been shot. Then, Jilson hears a voice that says, Okay, that's enough, let's go. As she hunkered down to protect herself, those words would prove to be key later along the line. And then we had, after that murder, an attempted murder, on the way back home, we believe, up in Cherville, there's another attempted shooting of uh, Joanne Pavarnik, uh, and she's not she's not shot. And then that was it for day one. So we had five potential victims. Two were murdered. Three were shot at as of October 30th. Following the bloodshed from that initial day, survivor Carrie Jolson provides information to the Griffith Police Department, and a composite sketch is put out. But the sketch, unfortunately, would cause its own set of problems. That is where uh, some confusion entered the investigation and put us down the wrong path. Because, as we would later find out, the Cedar Lake survivor described the shooter as a white male. The girl that was shot at in St. John initially reported it as a black male. However, for unknown reasons, and we were not aware of it, the report was eventually that she said, okay, it's a white male. The information in the police department sketch listed the suspect as a 5'10 white male in his 20s, who was slender, had a light complexion and reddish tint to his cheeks, and dark brown collar-length hair. The suspect was also said to have been driving a white, boxy car. A little over a month passes, and another victim, Harchon Dollywall, is found shot in the head this time at a gas station in Porter County on December 13th. So, as I said, on, on the 15th, once they had the uh, the murder of Dollywall at that Hudson station on 6th, that is when those police departments, which are all over there, <laughs> were now coming together. So you have between Griffith, Cedar Lake, St. John, Port, all these police departments then formed a task force on the 17th of of December, and it began at the Portage Police Department is where we gathered and started to uh, assemble our investigations and so forth and so on. A couple of days later, another spree occurs. So you've got Marie Meitzler, who's working at the Howard Johnsons in Portage. They learned of her shooting because the shotgun, when it went off, the concussion from the shotgun activated the fire alarm system. Then you had Aura Wildermuth who was at an ATM machine in, in Miller. After those two slayings, the killer then returns to the Hudson gas station on US 6 in Portage. Bob Bailey, who was manning the store at the time, managed to lock himself in and protect himself from the onslaught. He was actually on the phone with his wife saying yeah. he felt uneasy about being yeah. here. And he said, something tells me I, I shouldn't be here. And he locks the door to the, uh, to the Hudson. Hudson. Our, our friend Harris show, show up. And Peterson's going to go up and shoot another person in there, but he can't get into the building. The killer leaves and then heads on the Indiana toll road, eventually attempting to shoot a toll booth attendant, Robert Cotso, near Calumet Avenue in Hammond. They did take part of his ear yeah, off. His ears. He ducked down and he shot part of his ear off. On top of local police departments, the FBI provided an advisory role to the investigation. After the shooting in Portage, the FBI is now involved in a, uh, if you will, a consultant role and also to bring the resources of our behavioral science unit to play, to look at VICAP, uh, which is a database of, of uh, kept of unsolved murders and, and so forth, so that we could try and find out if this was related in any way to other serial killings or, or well, at the time it really wasn't a, 
it was more of a spree killing by that time because there really wasn't much uh, here would have just been a spree killing but once you have two or three more victims and there's a cooling off period it becomes a serial killer so at this point we're pretty much certain we're dealing with some type of serial killer because there is that cooling off period between and as you can see there was another cooling off period of three days so we knew it was a serial killer so we were looking through VICAP to see if there were other serial killers killings throughout the country or the world for that matter that matched something of this nature we were looking through local records to see if there were other similar crimes using shotguns in Lake and Porter County. Finally, the fourth day of slayings occurs three days later on December 18th at a tailor shop in Gary. Immigrant brothers Elijah and George Belosky lose their lives while a third brother witnesses the crime and flees the scene to run for help. They were working at, uh, they owned a tailor shop, I think like in the 44th and Broadway, somewhere in that area. And they were remodeling the one, the adjoining uh, office, if you will, next to the dry cleaning. And uh, he goes into there, ironically, the one that he shot in the basement, he was going up the stairs and he shot him in the back of the head or whatever, and he had a gun in his back waistband. So at the crime scene, you see this poor man's laying there and shot and he had a gun on him. Over a month of time goes by with no slayings. But a crime incident occurs January 29th in which Ronald Nixich, a manager at a taco restaurant, is approached by two black men at night while at an ATM by Southlake Mall. He's shot in the head, and the two men take his Nissan Stanza. Nixish, luckily, was not fatally shot. Lake County Sheriff's officers later arrest the men and take them into custody. The two are identified as Christopher Peterson and Antoine McGee, both of Gary. As they're questioned, McGee offers up enticing information for them. They took his car, and McGee was found in the car, and they arrested him, and then that's how it all came out. While you're driving the car of a armed robbery person, victim around, I have no idea, but they found the car, they found him in it, and then he said, whoa, I got some more information. Law enforcement found the information valuable, but also surprising. Up to that point, they had been searching for a white male suspect, not black. But a search of Peterson's home did find items that matched the claim. He owned a white boxy car, which witnesses to a few of the shootings had claimed to have seen. And a shotgun was located in his closet. The arrest of a black man instead of a white suspect so disturbed the Gary community that the mayor at the time, Thomas Barnes, asked police to clarify the confusion about the suspect's race. He feared the arrest would cause division in the community. If you'll recall, Ann Nikolich, a survivor from the killing spree on the first day near her home's garage, initially said the suspect was black, but later changed that description to a white male. I think that was one of the things that the papers were reporting and people were reporting on the misinformation uh, as, as to that. But again, we didn't know, I didn't know, and I was there every day, I did not know of the conflicting witness accounts at the, at the second location on October 30th, where I think we later learned that that person was pretty clear that that was a black person shooting at her, but somehow it came out as white. And that's frustrating when you, when you come across that. I mean, it's like, that would have been good to know. <laughs> you know it would have been really good to know. Um, so there, there, we did take heat for some of that stuff. Then came time to analyze a shotgun and determine whether or not law enforcement had secured the murder weapon. To help explain that, 
and her former firearms examiner, Kevin Judge. The task force and the public themselves are getting, we're all quite nervous to solve this, and they're all trying their best to figure out what's, what's going on. But despite the noise, Judge got to work, and he knew what he was looking for. From my experience, it looks to me like a gun that's old and well-worn. And um, in this particular case, um, because of the um, an extractor mark on the cartridge case, I said, well, it's either a pump shotgun or uh, perhaps a semi-automatic shotgun, one that would work that through an action, not just a single-barrel type shotgun or a double-barrel type shotgun. And once a gun was presented to him, he was able to make his determination well. So. As it turns out, when the shotgun becomes identified, it's a uh, 1897 Winchester that they produced up until the 50s. There were several scenes that had cartridge casings, and the cartridge casings were identified to each other as coming from one particular firearm, being fired in one particular firearm. So, when I had the shotgun itself to compare to, and a lot of shotguns were coming in because of this task force, so it was kind of on a regular basis, we were looking at shotguns that may or may not have been the one, and and none of them were, until um, the Christopher Peterson um, chase and, and... search of the home, all that had happened in the in the evening, and it was the next morning when I came into work that I was given the uh, shotgun to examine. I examined it, and uh, we had several scenes that cartridge casings were recovered at. And I had already did the work to say they all were fired in one particular firearm. Therefore, if any one of them were fired in that firearm, that meant all of them were, because that's already been determined. So what you do is you look at the one that had the best marks to compare to the firearm. There was much relief, not only for judge, but also for other law enforcement officials when they had their determination. I think it's the right word. I don't know if satisfying is a proper word for this, but it was uh, it felt good to get to like the end of the, not necessarily the end of a journey, but okay, now now we have the firearm. I don't know about anything else. That's for someone else to work out. It's up to the detectives to, you know, show where they got it from, try to identify who owns it, whatever. But my job was to identify the firearm, and, and now we have it. That was uh, one of the quests. We were at the end of the journey for that particular quest, to find the firearm. Becker and other investigators were also able to find where the shotgun likely had come from, an auto shop in Gary. He said, I own a company on Fifth Avenue. I've owned since 77, sometime in the summer of 90, possibly June or July. Two black males came to my business and ordered window glass for their vehicle. Uh, one of them gave him a $60 cash deposit so I could order it. 
Uh, for reasons outside his control, he was unable to obtain the glass as quickly as he thought he could. And the two individuals returned and were upset with him, so they beat him up. Um, he represented that that required approximately two weeks of hospitalization. Um, the beating took place approximately two to three weeks after they had provided him with this $60 deposit, which he didn't get back. Following that hospitalization, they returned to the business and again beat him up, requiring several more days of hospitalization. Um, he believes that that second beating had taken place very shortly after his uh, release from the hospital. Um, he did tell us that about two years prior to that, he had purchased a shotgun, make and model, and gauge unknown from an unknown individual. He kept that weapon in his office at his company, and he knew it had been present prior to the second beating that he had received from these individuals. And then following the second beating and upon release from the hospital, he found the shotgun to no longer be present in his company. And it was his belief that one of these two individuals removed the shotgun from his business uh, during the time they beat him up the second time. After police had seized the shotgun and other evidence, Christopher Peterson's mother persuaded him to surrender. He signed statements admitting to all seven murders and two attempted murders. Earlier on, FBI profilers believed their eventual suspect would be someone who had experienced a traumatic event in life. In confessions, the suspicion was confirmed, as Peterson told police he had occasional urges to hurt and had a vengeance against white people. He said during his time serving in the Marines that he had been denied a leave to visit his girlfriend, who had gone through a miscarriage. Peterson's eventual trial took several turns, as back-and-forth debate over evidence eventually resulted in his acquittals in the murders of Lawrence Mills, Rhonda Hammersley, and Ora Wildermuth. He was convicted in the murders of Marie Meitzler and the Belosky brothers. But investigators believe Peterson did not act alone. Considering in the Cedar Lake incident, for example, someone had said, okay, that's enough, let's go. They had interviewed a Ronald Jeffrey Harris previously and had heard he had changed his physical appearance. He was also light-skinned. He had jerry curls that came down. He, he no longer had jerry curls that came down. He had grown uh, a beard or goatee, which he did not have before. Harris was always a, a bothering suspect out there. Why, you know, this guy had to have had a role. In a third interview with him, he gave police information that tied a handgun used in the robbery at South Lake Mall to Christopher Peterson. But before Harris left, investigators managed to snuff him out. And I knew that Peterson had not implicated implicate him at all, but I, I knew he, he had to have been the guy. And so I kind of posed what I guess we refer to as a bait question, and I said, you know, Peterson has admitted to these shootings. So he's given a lot of statements against his own, his own good, good, good interest. interest. So obviously, if he says that you were there, then I got to believe you were there. So what I want you to understand, Ron, is that you can be with someone and driving down a car when they just simply go off and you just do something stupid. That doesn't mean you're guilty of anything. Now, should you have maybe told the police about it? Sure, but maybe you were afraid for your life to tell the police. So I can understand why you you wouldn't um, you wouldn't have told the police about this. But I, I do truly believe you were there for one of the robberies, and and Peterson told us you were there, which was not true. <laughs> and he looked. I remember he looked out the window and he said, "Did he really tell you that?" And I said, "Yeah." He said, "Okay, I was there for one." And I said, well, "Have a seat." So then he sits down. and I think he's going to talk about the October 30th shooting down in Cedar Lake because that's the one I believed he was there for. 
but he goes ahead and talks about December 13th when they're driving down Route 6 in Hudson, uh, at the Hudson Station. There's a uh, older white male driver who cuts Peterson off. Peterson gets infuriated by it, makes uh, you know derogatory statements towards white people in general, but these people think they own the road, what, what have you, and he goes in, he drives into there, he says he takes a shotgun out of the back seat, he was underneath a coat, he walks in there, he hears a noise, he comes back with uh, money in his hands, it's got blood on it, and he throws it at, at Harris, and Harris says, you know, I freaked out, like, why would you have done that, you, you know, you're nuts, I don't want it, anything to do with this, and so we take a statement from him, and he signs it. Now, clearly, you can be with someone, and they do something like that. We didn't lie about that. I mean, you, you're not guilty of anything. Maybe you should have told the police about it when we interviewed you two times before. But whatever. So we really didn't have enough to charge him with anything at that point other than false providing of information or failure to provide information. But this one... The, the uh, October 31 is still the one in my mind that I think he did. And so I told him, I said, I'm glad you did this. And I'm glad you told me about this. But that isn't the one that Peterson told us about. Peterson told us about that you were with him on October 30th when you were at Cedar Lake. And two women were shot at, and one was shot. But he said, that's the one you were with, not the one on December 13th. And he said, he looked at me and said, Ah, the one way out in the boondocks. I go, yeah, that's the one. And he says, I was there for that one too. And that is and that is when everything stopped because now I knew he was going to be arrested and we had to advise him of his constitutional rights. Investigators felt relieved that they finally found their second suspect. And Harris was convicted in the murders of Rhonda Hammersley and Harchon Dollywall. Oh, yeah, it's the weight of the world off, off your shoulders, you know, because... All the speculation that we had on Harris turned out to be true. I mean, we knew there were two people involved in this thing, and Peterson Peterson wasn't going to give it up. And to this day, he hasn't given it up that I'm aware of. So it was up to us to dig it up. And um, it's not just how Tom and I felt, and I believe Teeling and Ro- Ross, um, Teeling and um, uh, Rosa from the marshal's office were in the FBI office at the time. It wasn't just that we were relieved. I mean, the prosecutors were relieved. The whole task force uh, had a sense of accomplishment that we we had the right people. Uh, and, and again, it wasn't until after that that we understood that the description of the blackmail just never really came to our attention from the witness on the first night of the shooting. So that's what confused us to begin with. And that's what confused the public, quite honestly. So. Byline is a production of the Times of Northwest Indiana. You can find all of our episodes at nwy.com. Reporting for this episode came from Sarah Reese. We'd like to thank Mark Becker and Kevin Judge for providing various comments for the story. If you have suggestions for an episode topic or want to share your thoughts, drop an email to kale.wilk at nwy.com. I'm Kale Wilk, and from the Times of Northwest Indiana, thank you for listening. See you next time. <laughs>